Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, I'm J.R. Lowry. This is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io online and join today. Today, my guest is Scott Williams, who I met when we were both working at McKinsey in the late 1990s. Scott is a senior advisor for the Boston Consulting Group, for whom he provides counsel to private equity clients evaluating opportunities in the mortgage, consumer credit, and consumer risk information services arenas. Scott started his career as a credit policy officer for the Bank of New Orleans. His career then wound through banking, insurance, and management consulting with stops at Wachovia, JP Morgan, USF&G, McKinsey, twice, Mitchell Madison, and HSBC. Scott then left the traditional corporate world and has since occupied his time with a combination of independent consulting work, his work for BCG, and work as a volunteer backcountry ranger, mostly working in Grand Teton National Park. Scott earned his bachelor's degree in European history from Washington and Lee University and his MBA from the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business. He and his wife live in Arizona. Scott, welcome. Glad to join you today. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. I know you just got back from a trip to Europe, so catching you a couple days after that. So talk to us about what you're doing today, the mix of things that are keeping you busy in your non-traditional career part of your journey. Most of what I'm doing is actively goofing off these days. I play a great deal of tennis, and so that consumes a good bit of time. The other is I've been spending time, I'm still involved with two corporate boards, and I just even though I swore I was not going to do any more nonprofit boards, I just got involved as the treasurer of the board of a nonprofit yeah. that benefits Jackson Hole Fire EMS. So it's my former colleagues, and I feel like I need to help them out. And that's that's something I'm pretty committed to doing. Yeah. Being a nonprofit treasurer is a lot of work and fairly thankless from what I have experienced secondhand. Yeah. it's As I said, I swore I wasn't going to do anymore, and I got roped back in. Not unlike... Mm-hmm. Al Pacino when he was in The Godfather. <laughs> There's a comparison if ever there was one. I've been spending <laughs> too much time in Italy. So you're doing this work with BCG as a senior advisor. How did you get involved with them? I had been with McKinsey and then I joined HSBC. When I was there, I met several of my BC or HSBC colleagues who had been at BCG before. When one of them retired and then subsequently I retired, he called me up and said, do you have any interest in being a senior advisor? And I said, sure. Now, that was much of the chagrin of McKinsey colleagues. But later yeah. when I talked to one of them, I said, well, be called and I send them invoices and they pay them. Yeah. But I've done most of my work with BCG around the consumer risk space. Hmm. So consumer finance, credit cards and things of that ilk, which is where I spent the last 10 years of my career. 
Yeah. And how much time does that take? Is it a heavy commitment or pretty light? It's it's decreasing, JR. I spent a good bit of it right after I got out because obviously I've been out. I retired in January of 2008. So the value of my insight goes down with time. And so I've spent a fair amount of time fairly actively with them before. And as it works out now, I get a call periodically and they'll say, hey, we need to do, we need some help with the due diligence. And that usually will be a couple of days leading to a bid. If the bid is successful, then it's a couple more days of working with teams. I think what's shocking to me, having been on the other side of that, is I talk to the teams at six or seven at night, and then they work all night, and then a new deck appears in the morning. Yeah, I think what is different than when you and I were associates in the accounting or in the consulting game is it's PowerPoint. Yeah. So I was literally hand drawing charts back in the day. And now, you know, I'll get 200 pages the next day, which is a little shocking. Yeah, that part obviously is a bit of overkill. And I think that the private equity diligence efforts that the consulting firms do, they, they're high burn efforts. I did a few of them when I was at McKinsey and incredibly demanding to do those. They pay a lot for a very short turnaround. They expect a lot and they're not overly tolerant of sleep or, or private lives. Yeah, uh, And again, that's the game you go into what's going on and it's fine. Yeah. But coming out of that, I got involved in two boards and that's led to what I'm doing today. So I would say my day-to-day involvement with BCG these days is pretty limited. And again, yeah. it's episodic when they call. Yeah. How much of your own consulting are you doing? I know that was part of the mix at one point as well. It was, and I'm not doing very much of that. I got calls from people that I knew again, back in the day. And so I spent pretty much 60, 70% of my first couple of years being out of BC or out of HSBC doing private consulting work and then also working with BCG. And that kind of surprised me because I didn't do a lot of kind of active solicitation for the work, but people were calling. And again, as you're out longer, the calls decrease in time. And I don't answer headhunter calls because I don't really want to go back in the corporate game. Yeah. Where do board roles? I have done board roles. The board roles that I've received recently have either been because of the advisory work that I've done or that I've known the folks on the board and then they put my name up or an investment banker that I worked with put me on one board recently. Yeah. But I meant the headhunters aren't calling about board roles then. No, they're not. Again, a lot of board roles get called because of the position you're in or the position you've had recently. And I retired at 49. So I've been out of the game for quite a while and it doesn't bother me in the least. My wife uh, was on several boards, one of which was a New York Stock Exchange REIT. Mm -hmm. And so she continued to get calls. But again, like me, she's been out for the same amount of time. And so we're enjoying easing into retirement and doing other things. Yeah. You use the word retirement. You're going to get to the more interesting part of what you've been doing perhaps over the last <laughs> X years, the you know, volunteer rangering that you've been doing in Grand Teton. So talk a little bit about that. How did you even get into that in the first place? JR, my career, and I use that term loosely over lots of things, has been random walk. I had always been enjoying outdoor activities, hiking, backpacking, et cetera. When we were in Chicago and I was still working, we bought a house in Jackson, Wyoming, 
and in part because it was a straight flight from Chicago to Jackson and then a 20-minute drive to our house. When we were done, Amy and I were done working, our daughter was finishing up school in Glencoe and was contemplating looking at New Trier, which is a phenomenal school, but it's a huge school. And we had talked about moving to Jackson after she was done with high school. And then she said, could I go to high school out there? And so we looked at it and said, sure. So she went to the Teton Science School, which is a wonderful private school. Um, and we moved. And so that had us in Jackson. And I got connected to a friend who is the chief backcountry ranger. And the Park Service has a very active volunteer program. There are about 25,000 paid National Park Service employees of, of all strokes, rangers all the way down to the guys who clean the bathrooms. There are about 220,000 volunteers in park, some of which will volunteer for a couple of days. Others are head cases like me that volunteer almost full time while they're there. And so the Park Service depends on volunteers and actively creates opportunities for them. And in my case, I spent time in the backcountry, and so they asked me if I'd join what was a backcountry patrol role. That led in going back to picking up my certs again for an EMT. Then I became a structural firefighter and a wildland firefighter, an engine captain, and a bunch of other things. So I mushroomed out from there. It was my second career, and I still am tangentially involved. Yeah, but I'm not going up to Grand Teton. I spent a summer living in a backcountry cabin that was built in 1936, and it was 14 by 16, and it was me and a whole bunch of very active mice. Yeah, so different career. You were, as you say, you were doing it almost full time over the years. As I would see the things you would post on Facebook, it did not feel at all like you were retired. The wildland firefighting training and things like that that you went through. So. The satisfaction you get out of doing something like that is totally different than the corporate world. Corporate world and what we did in McKinsey and what I did for HSBC, you're driven by numbers and you're driven by profit and you're driven by creating a good environment for people to work in. It's it, The sort of satisfaction is a little more intangible. When I worked in the park, I was involved in several pretty important rescues of people, including one that I went and brought him in. He was having heart problems. I ran down the trail, found him. We got him out, eventually got him to the hospital. And his wife came up to me and said, I think you were sent by God. So I think it was the park service, man, but thank you. But I never, ever got thanked like that in the corporate world. And that was very satisfying to me to know that you've made a difference, albeit only in one person's life, but in a big way. So yeah. I enjoyed that part of it, and I still enjoy it. When you were out in that shelter cabin, as you described it, how long would you be out there for it to pop? I was there for the whole summer. So I lived at the end of a, you might call it a road, it it was passable. And then I would patrol out from there. So I would go from there out on patrols for two to five days and then come back in and do ambulance shifts and things like that reasonably intense stuff for a guy who is retired. I would say the intense stuff is anything involving fire, whether it's structural firework or wildland fire. Very few things in backcountry patrol are going to kill you, but wildland fires and structural fires can, and that that gets your attention pretty quickly. 
Yeah. You're the, the second person I have spoken to who spent a stint as a volunteer firefighter in the last six weeks. And uh, the other person I spoke to, her name is Stacey Belf. I worked with her at State Street. She did this right after college and ultimately had a role in shaping her career because she got involved in a murder case with a baby that was basically dropped off at the fire station. And she testified and spent time in court and it convinced her that she wanted to be a lawyer and things went from there. Thankfully, nothing that I did in the fire service for any of my EMS work resulted in me going to court for anything. So that's yeah. I'd like to keep it that way. Yeah, absolutely. So how much are you still involved? Much less. I still today do, I developed an, a related hobby, which is I do moulage work, which is fake injuries, moulage French work, fake injuries. And I've gotten pretty invested in that. So it, I've gone to classes. Our medical director sent me to two DOD class or three DOD classes back in Washington for three weeks. So I now have more makeup than most women have, all of it designed to make you look terrible. It's been a lot of fun. And part of that goes to, I've taught EMT classes now, and I still do a lot of work with the local fire department and also with the park service. It's all about raising the reality of training so that if you raise yeah. the anxiety and the reality, people will perform better. Yeah. In, the, in theory, they should perform better in the real situation. Yeah. I can remember doing wilderness first aid training and they would take a little gauze pad out maybe and bloody somebody up with some fake blood. And the biggest thing I was worried about was not getting that fake blood on my clothing because I didn't want to ruin my clothes. So I'm not sure how real it came off to us, but it sounds like you've gotten much more elaborate about, about presenting injury to somebody who's doing training. Yeah. I can make you look pretty wretched. So it's, I've got spurting blood. I've got all kinds of things. I've, I've made people look bad. And, yeah. uh, and I'm proud of it. That's a really unique skill that you've developed. It was just, it, again, I got into it because for some of the same reasons you had, which is I was going to training and people would say, okay, now imagine that his arm is bleeding and you have to do something about it. And you're looking at his arm and it looks like this, there's nothing wrong. Yeah. And so I thought that's kind of lame. And then I went to one training where the guy who was leading the training had done a pretty decent job on moulage and it raised the anxiety and it raised the excitement about it. So I mm -hmm. thought, I'm going to look into doing that. And it leads to down a path of studying endless YouTube videos on Hollywood special effects and things like this. So we're coming into the time when Halloween is a big special effects time for people doing moulage work. They, in addition to doing fake injuries for fire departments, they also do a lot of makeup for Halloween. Yeah. And you could go work in a haunted house. You could be one of the cast members. Yeah. I could do that without makeup though. So that's fine. <laughs> yeah. All right. We'll leave that one. We'll let that one go. On a more serious note, you'd spent a lot of time in the back country and give you a moment to do a public service announcement that's not particularly career related. What's your guidance for people who want to go out in the backcountry in terms of staying safe? What are the things that get them into trouble the most? Wow. I would say there's two things I would suggest. Number one, if you're going in the backcountry anywhere, let somebody know where you're going. Write it down on a sheet yeah. of paper. I worked on a bunch of searches because I was part of the SAR search and mm -hmm. rescue team. And unfortunately, a lot of searches end badly because the person didn't let anybody know where they were. Now, maybe they got hurt in the backcountry, but we didn't know where they were. And it took us four or five days to find them. And instead of a rescue, it's now becoming a recovery. And yeah. so 
had they let us know, had they let anybody know, had they stuck a note on their computer that says, I'm going to be in this canyon, that would have ended better. The other one is national parks, and I think Ken Burns said it, are America's best idea, and I totally agree with that. They are also not Disney World. They are risky places, and people need to treat them with respect. I've seen people way in the backcountry with flip-flops, with no water, with no protection from rain, with no flashlights. We had one case where a man left at five in the afternoon, hiked 10 miles into the backcountry with no flashlight at all, and eventually came back, fell off a cliff and died. Just have some respect for the terrain you're in. Yeah, And there's a list of the 10 things you always have, the 10 essentials. Look it up on Google. Really important. It's basics like flashlight, means of waking fire, et cetera. So those are very common sense things. And that's what I would say. So that's my PSA. Leave a note, be respectful. (laughs) Especially to the volunteers, right? Yes. Actually, we'll say as a ranger, People are really nice to rangers. If you're in the backcountry and a ranger comes up, most people are delighted to see you because they haven't seen somebody for a day or two. And you've got a, you've got the arrowhead of the National Park Service on and you're out there just checking on them. They're really happy to see you. So I've rarely had disrespectful people. That's good. I guess if you think back to the time you've spent doing that and compare it to the corporate part of your career, what transferred over and what was just completely different that you had to learn and adapt to? Not much transferred over from my former life. I would say what did transfer over is the teamwork side of things. A lot of things you're doing in the corporate world, you're working on teams, et cetera, as you take on big projects and work, whether you're in consulting or whether you're in the corporate side, there is a teamwork element of it that directly translates into backcountry work where you're out on patrol with somebody else, sometimes by yourself, but often with another group. It's particularly the case when you get into bigger incidents where you have a large search that's going on, or for that matter, a wildland fire where you can be part of a team of upwards of, I I was on one wildland fire, we had 660 people on the fire. Wow. It's really important to get along with other people and to stay in your lane that you're playing in there. So I think that was part of it. The leadership part, it's very different. So in In a corporate world, you're pretty well understanding of what the drivers are. We're here to make money for the shareholders and to do that. It's a little more amorphous when you get into the park service where you are out taking care of the resource. We used to like say, we're trying to protect people from the resource and the resource from people. So it's a little of that, but it's not as clear cut as, hey, we're here to make money and we're all going to row in the same direction on that. Yeah. And I would imagine more so their experience and domain knowledge probably matter more than who technically is the most senior person oh. out somewhere. Yeah. there. I worked with some astonishing uh, rangers uh, yeah. who are phenomenal people, phenomenal public servants who get paid not enough and who have incredible knowledge about the park, about where the risks are, about how to help people, about how to interact with people. And that was completely independent of their title. Yeah, Many of the park rangers that I work with are seasonal rangers. And those folks are in for six months and then they leave. They don't have a title per se. Their title is park ranger. Yeah, But a lot of them would go through a blinding rainstorm to go help somebody. And more particularly, 
could tell you where that person might have been laid up in a blinding rainstorm so that we can all go get them together. So I, yes, skills are independent of rank. Yeah, I, I consider myself a reasonably experienced hiker, have done hiking in a lot of different places. And I'm, I would be the first to admit that I know nothing compared to a lot of other people who are out there about just how to hike in different conditions, how to survive. It's the beauty of it is you can always learn more. Yeah. No, that, I really enjoyed that. Every time a training opportunity was offered to me in the park, and there are lots, I took it. So that's how I ended up going to fire school. It's how I ended up going and getting my park medic, mm -hmm. which is an advanced EMT level and all these other things. There's lots to learn. And some of it you're going to learn in a class. And a lot of it you're going to learn by walking trails with somebody who's been doing this for 25, 30 years. Did you were obviously you're spending huge amounts of time doing this at points. Did it stop being enjoyable and start to feel like just a job or was it always a passion and therefore enjoyable for you? I would say it was not an unalloyed intellectual delight throughout that whole time. There were times where, and it was particularly the case where you'd be doing 48 hour shifts on for EMS, where I'd be sleeping at the station for 48 hours. And you start scratching your head and saying, I'm doing this as a volunteer to let paid staff off. So yeah. they're off, which is fine, but it's really a job for them. And for me, this should be enjoyable. So I enjoyed much more of my time in the backcountry than rather than sitting around waiting for ambulance calls. Yeah. But again, that, that was a minor part of it. Occasionally it got frustrating. Much of the time, I really enjoyed what I did. Yeah, that's good. So let's go back to the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is the middle of the state of Virginia. My dad was a history professor. My mom taught first grade. So I'm the byproduct of two teachers. And so that was hometown for me was Charlottesville. That's the where the University of Virginia is located. And that's the biggest reason why I didn't go there undergrad. Yeah. Dad, in addition to being a history professor, was the dean of students at the time. And I really didn't need to go where my mm -hmm. dad was the dean. Yeah. So I went to school at Lexington, Virginia, which is a small liberal arts school, Washington and Lee University, and had a great time. I will say a great time because I started out thinking I wanted to go to med school, and then eventually organic chemistry convinced me that med school was not, not going to be in my future. So I ended up as a history major at WNL. How did you end up, after thinking about medical school, how did you end up working in the credit area of a bank? Luck, again, on my random walk. Okay. I was dating somebody at the time from New Orleans, and I had a history major. And as my dad would tell you, or would have told you, history majors are good for going to get a PhD or applying to law school, neither mm -hmm. of which I wanted to do. But I did have a girlfriend in New Orleans at the time. And so I went down there and through a friend met somebody who worked for a bank and they said, come on and interview with our training program. So that's what I did. The girlfriend didn't work out, but banking turned out to be of interest to me, and that did pan out. So I moved from there later to a bank in Atlanta, and then back to business school. Yeah. What did you, you fell into it as you've just described it, but what did you learn about yourself in those early days about what you wanted to do and maybe didn't want to do professionally? Um, what I liked about the banking side of things is it's numeric. And I, again, I'm, although I'm a history major, I had calculus, physics, statistics, and a number of other things. So I like to say I'm a, a somewhat numerate history major. And the, the banking side of things, 
just made a lot of sense to me. There was a lot of analytics involved, a lot of examining what was going on and trying to figure out whether this company would or would not pay you back in the case of a lending situation. What I discovered I didn't doing was regional banking. So I wanted to, we're taking participations or shares of larger structured deals. We look at where they're being structured. They're being structured in New York City and I'm sitting in Atlanta. Right. So I didn't like that side of it and decide that I wanted to go back to business school and use that as the stepping stone to moving on to New York. Okay. That's what I ended up doing. When I got to New York after business school, I started with JP Morgan in the derivatives group, which was the doing swap marketing. So swaps, interest rate swaps, fixed income swaps involve transforming one form of debt into a different type of debt. And so this was, they were relatively new at the time. And my job was in the marketing side was explaining swaps to some of the treasury people at our different clients. And so we would, I would talk to the serious quant guys who were doing the working on the desk and putting the deals together. Mm. And then you go and talk to the CFO or the treasurer and explain how this would work on a restructuring. And so it was putting those two groups together. And that's not dissimilar from some of the things we've done elsewhere. It's trying to take a difficult problem, simplify it, explain it, and try to make sure that it works for the client. Yeah. Yeah. And that sort of is a good segue into the shift then into McKinsey. So you'd spent up until that point, other than the business school, you'd been in three different banks working in a variety of different things. So what led you to jump over into management consulting? When I had been at Darden for business school, I interviewed, I didn't interview, actually, I told McKinsey, I didn't want to be a consultant. I wanted to go to Wall Street. And later I got a call from a director of McKinsey who said, well, let's go to lunch. And what I decided was when you think about what people do in banks is you spend most of the day, most of the your career thinking about the right side of the balance sheet. How do we optimally mm-hmm. capitalize debt, equity, and all of that? Most of the time in consulting, you're focused on the left side of the balance sheet. What do we do with all of them, their assets? And that appealed to me of how do we make it better? Where do you invest? Where do you not invest? So a lot of the work that I did eventually at McKinsey had nothing to do at all with capital markets, had everything to do with how do you improve efficiency, effectiveness of a client operation. Yeah. Looking back, was that a better fit for you at that point than than being in banking itself? Yeah. Yeah. And and I won't say the lifestyle was an improvement because going from investment bank to consulting, eh, pretty much a push, Mm. but I did enjoy the nature of the work that we were doing. The downside was it came with an excessive amount of travel, but that's just part of the game you signed up for. Yes. As I well know. Yeah. As I well know. But then you went back into financial services, You this time into insurance. Yes and no. Um, yes, I did go. So I left McKinsey. So I joined McKinsey and then I left because I was in the middle of traveling 256 nights of the year. Mm-hmm. One point Atlanta, when I was in the Atlanta office, tracked three quantitative measures of happiness, which is strange. One is how many total nights are you away? The second is, how many Sunday flights are you taking? And the third is, how many Fridays are you in the office? And at one point, I maxed on all three of those things for the entire office because I used to go wherever there was a good client and a good ED, and and the problem was interesting. The client was interesting. 
interesting. And so I would go there, but it meant that I was spending a lot of time on airplanes, which was great professionally, but bad personally. So when I was married to a Darden classmate, that was tough. And so mm. that didn't end well. And so in, in 2003, I decided to leave, sorry, in 1993, excuse me, I decided to leave and join a turnaround insurance company in Baltimore, Maryland. And to be honest, I didn't really want to work in insurance and I didn't really want to live in Baltimore, but I wanted to work on turnarounds because everybody has a pretty high desire to get things changed. So I yeah. imagine I would do that. Most of the things that I did in the work world were trying to do something that created more options for me going down the road. Yeah, which and isn't so, a bad way to think about it. Yeah, it's, when I say random walk, a lot of things I did, I went with the flow on something, but it was because it created an opportunity down the road. And so I thought working on a turnaround would be interesting. It gave me more experience. I ran a unit in Canada for part of that time. And as I like to say, we took a nearly failed company and mm. turned it into a thoroughly average one and sold it. So it was great for our options. And then I went back to a spinoff of McKinsey, which was, wasn't a spinoff. It was a group of people that left McKinsey and founded Mitchell Madison Group, which was a another consulting firm and did that for a couple of years and then returned to consulting at McKinsey. Yeah. So that in the Chicago office. Back to travel. Uh, that was, pardon? Back to traveling. Yeah, that was probably even worse because I came back as a, I was a partner, but I came back as a specialist in things. So I would travel all over the world, which again was interesting and fun, but was hard. And yeah. I, again, I take nothing at all away from McKinsey. It was a great experience, but I wouldn't want to do that again at, yeah. <laughs> at my current age. I always looked at those specialist roles, functional or industry specialists that tended to have a broader geographic footprint than most of us. And I, for that reason, just thought, no way. I was traveling not nearly as much as what you're describing, but it was still north of 100 days a year, probably 150 days a year. And it was grueling. Yeah, it, and that was tiresome. I spent a lot of time in Seoul. So traveling from Seoul to Chicago to Seoul, Chicago to Delhi, Chicago to Sao Paulo, which I can tell you is actually a strange day trip. You get on a plane, you fly 12 hours, you only change two hours. You get off, you work all day, and then you get on right. a plane and fly back. So you've done right. one day of work. And you've actually not lost that. You you go into work the next day and it's a yeah. bizarre thing to do. Yeah. But again, it was the life of a specialist and that was fine. When I left McKinsey and joined HSBC, I did so because I'd been serving HSBC. And then Bobby Mehta, who was also BCG, met me and said, you're a pretty good consultant, but we think you'd be a better operator. And mm. it turns out it was right. So I joined HSBC. And I really enjoyed that. Part of the, the fun of it was one of the frustrations. I don't know if you knew Fred Eppinger, but Fred used oh, to yeah. explain, we were all very logical in consulting. There's there this phase and then this phase and then analysis, et cetera. And at the end, there was client implementation. And as Fred used to say, yeah, the client sees McKinsey and then implementation going on forever. Mm -hmm. And we used to try to hardwire the client to do that, but you can't possibly do that. And so what I enjoyed going to work at HSBC, where I had a good-sized team, building a team, trying things, altering them if they're not working, and continue to expand and learn. And that was a bunch of fun. I had almost 90 quantitative people that worked in my area. 
And wow. it was a bunch of fun. Yeah. Until it wasn't. And I managed to get out of the lending mortgage business at the beginning of 2008, which later Bobby told me was very good timing. Yeah. To put it mildly, was very good timing. Yeah. What did you find? What made you a better operator than a consultant? What was it that really played to your strengths? Honestly, it's a it's an ego thing, but I have a pretty good I have pretty good confidence in my judgment when I'm around. Now, I had a very diverse team and I really appreciated that diverse team. But at the end of the day, when it came down to saying we're gonna go do this, I, I was comfortable doing that. And I think that was helpful. I was also pretty comfortable working in the executive team that we had. I'm probably a better number two than I am number one. I don't really aspire to be a CEO, but I really like being that number two role. And that was the role that I took on. And so I enjoyed that kind of pushing things forward, making things happen. It can come across as brusque and rude at times. And I, that's something I've struggled with and I continue to try and manage that, especially when I get on nonprofits, it causes me to breathe yeah. and do Zen motions. But I would say that confidence has served me well and occasionally serves me less well, but I try to learn from those. Yeah. And it's hard when you're in those sort of COO number two person roles. Your job first and foremost is to get stuff, to yep. make sure the place is operating day to day. And you end up being playing more of the heavy sometimes yeah. than the CEO does. And that comes with the territory. Yeah. I worked for a fabulous CEO and he had an incredible memory on names. So he could walk around our whole organization and know everybody. And he maybe met them once a year ago and he still remembers their name. Yeah, I have a terrible memory for name. Yeah. But again, Tom was really good and he would make hard calls. I could be more of the pit bull when it needed to be. And that was something that I enjoyed doing. I wouldn't say intentionally being the pit bull, but really getting things done. I used to say that I liked hiring mechanical engineers because if you ever hire a mechanical engineer, they not only can do all the analytics, but they like to build stuff and get it done. Yeah. And these were a group that I really appreciated. I was an EE, so different kind of building and uh, mechanicals. So you, sorry to despair, not disparaging electrical engineers, but the mechanical folks just went out there and had at it. The mechanical engineers like to remind all the other kinds of engineers that pretty much every other kind of engineering ultimately is grounded in mechanical engineering, which is true <laughs> to a point, but maybe not completely. Yeah. So you've done all these different things, including putting makeup on yourself and spurting blood and all that. What would you say are the consistent strengths that you've drawn on over the course of those many different things you've done? I'm pretty curious about things and I enjoy learning and I enjoy expanding my skills so that I can do things for other people. So whether that's learning to be fire or whether that's going on and learning a lot about consumer risk management, mm. I read a lot, talked to a lot of people. We experimented a lot and I, I enjoy that learning aspect of it. Um, and I'm sure many other people would say curiosity, but that part of it is for me, something that's been intriguing. I think the other is trying to find something that's useful. And I, at one point thought I was going to go back for a PhD before I went back to McKinsey the second time. And I talked to a friend who was the chair of the finance department at NYU, and I talked to some of his students, and then I asked him about their research, and they described 
oh, all of this detailed research they were doing and uh, how important it was and everything else. And I said, have you talked to anybody in business? And the answer was no. But it wasn't no, like, I, that's a great idea. I should talk to somebody. It was no, why would I want to do that? And that pretty quickly convinced me that academia was not where I wanted to be, that I really want to go out and make things change. And so I enjoy that side of things. Yeah, it's funny. I, uh, I always like to interview PhD candidates when I was working at McKinsey. And there were a few questions I would always ask them. One of them is explain your research to me, which is ultimately about, can you take something that's incredibly complicated that I'm obviously not going to understand the nuances of and explain it to me in enough English that like I can walk away saying, okay, I get it. And then the second question was, how is that used? Which gets to your point about, do you actually understand the practical value of what you're working on? If there is a practical value of what you're working on. And it was an interesting way of testing whether they could explain difficult concepts and also translate them into business relevance. Yeah. And I think that's particularly the case when you get into business related things. So I understand if you're out doing basic research in biology, chemistry, et cetera, but if you're actually in a business school pursuing a business related PhD, you ought to be thinking about advancing the practice of Mm. business. And if you have no interest in interacting with practitioners, I kind of question what you're doing. Yeah. Now, again, I'm not editing journals, so it doesn't matter. But if all your aspiration is to get written up in some obscure finance journal, yeah. that just doesn't have a lot of appeal to me. Yeah, it's, that's it's a really different direction. One you obviously chose not to take, but for other people, it's they like going deep down the rabbit hole on a particular mm-hmm. topic and advancing the state of thinking on that topic. And that's great. My daughter is one of those people. She's working on her PhD right now. So she knows much more about the biology of E. coli and other gut bacteria than I will ever pretend to know. And that's what's central to what she's doing. Daughter is pursuing doctor of veterinary medicine degree. So I'm all for the sciences. Yeah. But I've managed to disparage electrical engineers and PhDs in one interview. So that's- We'll have to figure out what the third part of the trifecta is going to be done. (laughs) I'm sure I can insult somebody else along the way. (laughs) Yeah. So apart from having difficulty remembering people's names and being brusque at times. What are the things, other things that you worked on developing over the years? One thing that became evident to me as you move, as I became more senior was there's a great deal of deference that's paid and it's particularly in the corporate world. So you would come out, I would come out and say, I think we should do something and people would just go off and do it. And I really, I'll give you one story. When I was first at HSBC, I went and said, I'm going to spend six weeks walking around, listening, talking to people, trying to understand what the issues are before I come out with any reorg or anything else, which I later did. And I was at a meeting and I said, I think we should do this, whatever this is. And a woman pushed back on me and said, I disagree with you for the following three reasons, one, two, three, and they were great. She was two levels down from me in the organization, and I appreciated that and later promoted her to be a direct report because what I learned over time is people are reluctant to do that. They just say, Mm. Scott said to do it, CEO said to do it. No, I had an idea, but if you have more facts, push back on me. But that level of comfort in being candid is not 
always seen in organizations. And frankly, some organizations don't support it. Yeah. They really want you to be, hey, the old man said, do it, go do it. Yeah. Uh, and in my case, yeah, I want to get things done, but I don't want to make wholehearted mistakes. And if you have better information and you have better facts, as many people do, stand up for yourself and tell us we're going in the wrong direction, but just do it in a fact-based way. Don't just do it because I don't like it. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. And obviously there's an element of doing it in a respectful way, or at least trying to at first do it in a respectful way and making sure that you're more likely to get heard. You've hinted a little bit at this, but what else defined the kind of leader that you tried to be when you were a leader? I tried to, first up, I tried to recognize everybody. So when I was going through college, doesn't appear on my resume. I spent one summer working as a welder in a shipyard in New Orleans. So I appreciated the kind of frontline work and hard work. I also appreciate people on the front line doing the work. So at the end of every month, we would have a big push for month end clothes and things like this. I would go down to the underwriting area on the south side of Chicago, put on an apron and a chef's cap and buy a bunch of ice cream and roll it up and down the aisles, feeding the underwriters and just serving the underwriters. We talk about servant leaders, and I mm. that's a very minor example of it. But I think it's easy for people to disparage folks that aren't at the same level and maybe don't have the same background. And I tried really hard not to do that. Yeah. I got really angry with people if they did that. Mm. And I, I, I'm pretty short when that happens with people when they get out of line. Yeah. Um, you can tell a lot. If you go to a restaurant, you watch how somebody treats the waiter or waitress and they treat them badly. That gives a lot of insight in terms of how they're going to operate with other people as well. And, yeah. and so I've just tried not to do that. I came from pretty middle-class, lower middle-class background. And I just, I respect people that are doing that work. Yeah. Yeah. And how you treat people matters. I can remember one time, this is when I was at State Street, we had somebody come in for an interview. It was an ESG related role, if I'm remembering right. And the person was not nice to the, the person sitting at reception and the person sitting at reception who was not a wallflower by any stretch came in afterwards and said, I just want to play back what happened when this person got there. And that was it done. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I guess I have that. And the other one is about being truthful. I had a situation where a person who worked in my organization was being ordered by somebody in marketing to send out some data. He knew that he shouldn't because it, it wasn't encrypted. He did it anyway on a Friday afternoon because he was being pressured by a more senior person in the marketing area. And I found out about it. And unfortunately, he lied to me. And so what might have been, we might have been able to work around it, but he lied to me. And that that was the end of it. If I don't trust you, that's a hard thing to rebuild. Now, nobody's perfect and people make mistakes, but you really, I think, get into more trouble when you start lying. You're better off just admitting it and saying, hey, how do we work forward from here? You've played a follower role too, particularly in the volunteer work that you've done. How, how has being a leader made you a better follower in your volunteer work and others? I just enjoy being on teams and I understand where my role is and I try to stay in my lane. For example, if you're on a wildland fire and you're not the engine boss, you don't go to meetings. You just stay there and your boss, comes, whoever the engine boss is, comes back and says, okay, for our 10-person group, this is what we're doing. By the same token, I ended up in a kind of odd role because 
the people I worked with knew I'd been in the corporate world and could read LinkedIn and see that I'd done a number of things. Yeah. So I got brought in periodically to give to give talks on leadership to yeah. senior park people. And that was a little awkward because, oh, wait, you're the guy who's down there in the ambulance bay. Yeah. And that's okay. I did spend a fair amount of time with two senior people being their coach, mentor, whatever. And I still stay in touch with them as they've moved up their career. And, and that's been very rewarding, but it was it's more about helping them out at this point because I've done all that I'm going to do in the corporate world and they're still moving along in the park service and, and the park service can do a decent job with some managers. There are some very good managers and some mm. very weak ones, mm. but that's you're going to find that in any organization. But I happen to work with two of them that I was very pleased with and that have gone on to do good things in the park. Yeah. See, so you're coming up on 15 years past your retirement. Um You've been doing all these different things over the last 15 years. What's the future hold for you? How involved in the work world do you want to stay or are you on a continued glide path to tennis and travel? Honestly, it's the conundrum that I face right now because we elected to leave Jackson, Wyoming and move Jackson Hole, Jackson, Wyoming and move to Tucson, which is lovely and it's great. And particularly today when it's 80 degrees and 5% humidity. However, it's not next to any large national parks. We have Saguaro, but Saguaro is a fairly small park with limited roles. Yeah. So my ability to stay plugged in with the park service is limited now to me doing EMS training for them from time to time. And that's been a challenge is figuring out what's the next big thing. Cause I worked thousands of hours for the park service and that a passion and a commitment that I had between that and volunteering as a firefighter for the local community. Jackson Hole Fire EMS. I still haven't figured out what the next big thing is, but I got to figure out something. Yeah. Uh, again, two boards is something that keeps you intellectually engaged. Yeah. I chair the comp committee on one of them, and that's that's a thankless, painful job. And like almost I said, like I got, being the treasurer of a nonprofit. Yeah, and that that too, which is equally yeah thankless, but it's a nonprofit that matters to the local firefighters in Jackson. So I'm happy to do that. Yeah. Uh, but I haven't figured out what the next big thing is. My wife just started volunteering for a local food bank. And so she's finding a great deal of satisfaction in the hands-on element of packing food and getting people to food that they might not have had if it weren't for the food bank. So yeah, she's found that passion. I might plug in with that, but I'm, I got to figure it out that that's my next big challenge. Yeah. Talk to me in a year. <laughs> All right. We'll have a, we'll have a follow-up conversation in a year. If you look backward, what advice would you give your younger? Be less of an asshole. I was, I've always been pretty competitive and that's fine. I was competitive in college sports and competitive afterwards. And that desire to do well and achieve drives a lot of us in the business world, but sometimes it can drive a little too hard. And yeah. so I, as I get older, a little more, maybe I've calm down a lot on that. But my 30-year-old self, my even 40-year-old self was probably pretty unsufferable at times. And I, I would I if I could wave the magic wand, I would I would yeah. tell that person to chill out. I never thought of you in that respect. Maybe it was just a comparison to other people at McKinsey that <laughs> you're right up at the top end of that normal distribution curve. With JR, you've there. learned long ago that you should never use McKinsey people as, as a reflection on the society as a whole. 
That's a very good point. All right. Any final career advice you want to dispense before we break? I, the other that I, whenever I would talk to folks, somebody would ask me, what did you, what would you suggest? And I always told them that they should save up money so that they had what I call a go to hell fund. Yeah. And I view it in terms of if somebody is asking you to do something you think is against your personal values, that is unethical, is illegal. I didn't ever want to be in a spot where I was financially tied to a job that I couldn't quit. And I think I saved money in what I call my go to hell fund. Yeah. Uh, Thankfully, I didn't have to tell anybody to go to hell, but it was there just to provide you that flexibility. I've seen a lot of people, especially as somebody who spent a career doing consumer lending work, get themselves way over leveraged and way committed. And that limits your personal flexibility and it limits your ability to manage your own ethics in a way that doesn't conflict with making money. And so I think the go to hell fund is helpful. Good enough. Hey, this has been great. I learned a new French word, moulage. <laughs> of course. I will never look at fake injuries the same. And I will wonder what you're dressing up as is Halloween. So <laughs> on Halloween. Yeah. Scott, thanks for making time. It's good to catch up. It's been a long time since we've had a certainly a face-to-face conversation. I know we just talked a couple of weeks ago, but I think prior to that, it was probably many years before. So nice to catch up real time, more than the emails and occasional texts back and forth about hiking destination. Appreciate it. Thanks for the thoughtful question, Chair. That caused me to stop and reflect on some things. Reflecting is good from time to time. Reflecting is good from time to time. So, I, And I wish you luck in, in your reflections about what next. So Often, It'll be something else. It's random and I'll figure it out. Yeah. All right. Look forward to hearing up about it at some point soon. Great. Thanks, right. JR. Yep. Thank you. I'd like to thank Scott for joining me today and sharing his unique and yet unfinished career journey. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. If you'd like more regular career insights, you can become a Pathwise member. Again, it's free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow Pathwise on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.